Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Signalman First Class Douglas Monroe. Monroe would be awarded the Medal of Honor for actions during the Battle of Guadalcanal in 1942. It's the Pacific Theater of World War II. And his story is unique because he's the only member of the Coast Guard to receive the Medal of Honor. Now, the Coast Guard is not a, a part of the Department of Defense, but in World War II, they were very, very closely integrated. They're closely integrated today, but there were very specific roles during the conflict that members of the Coast Guard filled. One of those was taking landing craft ashore. And that's the job of Signalman First Class Monroe. The reason for that is if you look at the number of ships in the Navy, it's it's a lot, but there's a different skill set to captain and maneuver a battleship or an aircraft carrier than a small 40-foot boat going to shore through the surf. It's, it requires, you know, different background, different training, um, different mindset. And the Navy was going to have to train a huge group of people to take over these landing craft. I mean, it's a lot, hundreds, thousands of landing craft, or they could look for people that are already experienced in that type of, of, um, maneuver. The Coast Guard fit the bill. The Coast Guard generally has smaller ships, and a lot of their members pull from backgrounds on smaller vessels like that. So it was a great match. And in turn, you have a lot, not exclusive, but a lot of the landing craft that come to shore are going to be piloted by members of the Coast Guard in both the both the Atlantic and the Pacific theater. So the landing craft are all different shapes and sizes. One of the most common kind of the most basic version is going to be called a Higgins boat. It's probably what comes to mind when you think of folks landing on Omaha beach or all across the Normandy coast. That's also going to be used heavily in the Pacific. And it's, I want to say about a 40 foot boat. And at one point it was plywood. I think they upgraded to some metal throughout the war, but it, there's just not much to it. It's a flat bottom boat that, that is designed to cut through and be able to go over some of the surf and, and, land on a variety of beaches, rocky or grass or, or, or sand, soft, hard. Um, it's kind of a versatile craft designed exclusively to get people ashore and then hurry up and get out of there and go pick up another batch. That is, and then there's a couple others. There's larger ships that are designed to uh, offload tanks or maybe larger groups of infantry. A Higgins boat can only take about a platoon, maybe 30, 30 to 40 at a time. So there's a bunch of different sizes of landing craft, many of them piloted by members of the Coast Guard. So if we if we shift over to Guadalcanal and what's going on in at Guadalcanal at the time of this action, if you remember, U.S. forces landed on the island in August of 1942. August 7th, 1942, they hit the beaches. There's not a lot of resistance right out the gate. And the Americans are landing on the north side of the island, American Marines, in the first major ground action of the Pacific War. So remember, Pearl Harbor took place in December 1941. We're talking about August 1942. So 
less than a year later, but it takes a while to kind of rebuild our forces and get a game plan set and figure out what the heck are we going to do in order to win this war. And the country's chomping at the bit to do something. We want to see something happen. Now, it's not fair to say that nothing's happened. There's been major actions um, around the world since this time to include major U.S. victories like Midway uh, following Battle of Pearl Harbor, but or following the attack on Pearl Harbor. But Guadalcanal is going to be the first major land action, and and that's important to note because we're still learning. The it's a it's a military that is learning as we go, especially how some of these operations are going to take place, and that's that's important to Monroe's Monroe's story here. So U.S. forces land around uh, on or around August 7th, 1942, and they take something known as Henderson Field. Well, it's an airfield, and the Marines name it Henderson Field. And it's really kind of a – it's the toehold for the Marines. And if you look at a map of where everything sat in 1942 or in the, the first few days of August, really the month of August, the Marines grabbed a hold of this airfield, kicked out a little bit, and and they didn't stop. But they weren't necessarily pushing out to clear the island. They were establishing this base that the airfield was going to be their um, their lifeline in and out. Especially as as the battle goes on, and you would see transport ships and and aircraft carriers kind of come and go um, as the Japanese fleet threatened or, or maneuvered through the area. That airfield was was it. So in turn, rather than push across the island right away, let's dig in. Let's make sure, if nothing else, we can defend this airfield. And they do. There's a lot of really, really crazy battles, including what would be known as the Battle of Henderson Field that would come a little while later. But the time we're going to talk about is in September of 1942. So barely five weeks after the landing, the Japanese at this point have, and this is, uh, it's not unique to Guadalcanal, but you don't see this as much later in the war. The Japanese are landing reinforcements on Guadalcanal. It's almost like both sides are waiting to see where the landings are going to take place. And once it's identified as Guadalcanal, the Japanese said, great, now we'll reinforce and we'll fight on Guadalcanal. Because the Japanese Navy takes a beating as the war goes on, they're unable to do that as much. But during the Battle of Guadalcanal, you'll see both sides reinforcing. I mean, it's it's the image in my mind is just, this isn't the case, but it's it's ships coming on each side of the island, dropping off troops that just dive right into battle. Um, it's one of the reasons that it's a pretty nasty campaign. The The forces on both sides continue to grow. Both sides are under air attack from the other's Air Force or, or, or Navy, Navy pilots. Both sides at times are under bombardment from the other side's Navy. I mean, it's it's an interesting campaign, un- relatively unique campaign because you don't have all of those aspects for every other island and campaign throughout the Pacific. Nonetheless, the Marines are holding this airfield and they're digging in to make sure that they can, can, can continue to do so. But the Japanese are attacking really from all three sides. So think of it, they've got their back to the, the airfield's pretty close to the shore, just a couple of miles inland. So the Marines have this you know semicircle area that they've locked down. There start to be relatively concerted attacks on the lines. One of the famous being the Battle of the Teneru, or I think Crocodile Creek is another. Crocodile Creek, I think is what it is. Um, same names for a battle where the Japanese famously just attack, frontal attack on the Marine lines and get get 
slaughtered. But it's it's like an it's an eye opening experience for the Marines on the island. It's, it's some of the first major combat they're seeing. There's a lot of probing attacks, a lot of a lot of engagements. But this is, I mean, hundreds of Japanese walking right into American machine gun fire. It's it's a it's a jarring experience. But that's already occurred. That that occurs in in I want to say in late August. And by September, American forces are looking to not necessarily push the lines out a little bit further from the airfield, but at least clear out some pockets of enemy resistance um, where they continue to stage, regroup, and then attack the American lines. That's what's taking place by the time we get to late September of 1942. There's a river to the west of the American lines called the Montancow River. And I'm probably mispronouncing that, so we're just going to start calling it the river west of the American lines. Um West of that river is where Japanese forces are staging as they attack that side of the American line. So a plan is devised. We're going to go over there and we're going to kind of hit this Japanese force estimated to be about 400. And we're going to disperse them a little bit. If nothing else, it'll buy a little more time and and kind of confuse the enemy about where the Americans are really forcing or uh, focusing their counterattacks. Now, the river is wide enough that, that you have to go across bridges that are there. And there's only a couple. One of them is it's a very narrow, like one Marine at a time can cross the bridge. And they've tried to do this a couple times, but it's it's pretty well defended. And again, if you have to cross one person at a time, that's incredibly dangerous and, and slow moving and hard to assault across that area. So a plan is put together where some Marine elements are going to stay on that side of the river and they're going to assault across kind of forcing the enemy's hand right there. And then there's going to be three companies, about 500 Marines are going to take landing craft and land, you know, behind the enemy line, if you will, it's just a couple hundred yards further inland, but they're going to land behind where the enemy behind where the other Marine group is attacking and kind of catch them from both sides is going to be the plan of attack. Again, we're thinking about 400 enemy all in, in this little pocket that is now being created. So over a thousand Marines are taking place in this action. Thousand versus 400 shouldn't be that big of a deal. So the Marines start pushing across the river and get repelled very quickly. Word doesn't make it out to the Marines that are in the landing craft and they push ahead. One of the people piloting those landing craft in charge of the entire group of landing craft is Signalman First Class Douglas Monroe. He lands those Marines on the beaches, about 500, three companies of Marines worth, lands them on the beaches, and there's not a lot of resistance right off the gate. Remember, the number I keep throwing out, there's 400 is the estimate. That force that Monroe lands moves up to a little knoll at the top of the beach and, and or a little hill and sets into a defense and waits for these Japanese that they expect are being pushed back by their fellow Marines and they're going to cut them off and they're going to wipe out this group. But that group of 400 ends up being closer to 4,000. That 4,000 man force of Japanese not only stops the Marine attack trying to come across the river like in its tracks, like not happening at all, but when they see that Monroe has landed Marines behind their lines, they turn and mass on that formation and the Marines very quickly are outnumbered, outgunned, and at risk of being overrun. There's some issues. Again, we're talking about very early in the war, and there's a lot of learning points to be had. One of the issues with those those 500 submarines that Monroe landed is that they don't have radio equipment to 
get back or that the radio equipment isn't working to relay what's happening. They can't get word out that they are about to be overrun. They end up spelling out with t-shirts in the sand, help. Spotted by an aircraft, that word makes it back to the naval fleet. And Monroe is asked, the the decision is made, we got to get these guys out of there. And Monroe is asked, will you do it? And he says, absolutely. He's going to go back into the teeth of this fight. I mean, they're not very far off the beach, the Marines. It's not like they're deep inland. And they're going to have to fight their way back to the beach. Monroe volunteers, says, I'll go get them. I'll take my guys. He takes a couple craft, and they start making their way back to the beach. Now, at this point, the Japanese have, I mean, they've got the, the Marines number, and they have them borderline encircled. In order to break out of that circle, the Marines call on naval gunfire support. Five-inch shells from some naval ships start landing hitting the Japanese positions between the Marines and the water. So on the beach. So it's essentially opening up a path for them to maneuver back out and evacuate. Because of the intensity of enemy fire raining down from multiple directions, they have to consider, they can't sit on the beach and wait to be extracted. They have to be held under cover to some extent. And as, as a landing craft comes up to the beach, the Marines are going to sprint in, get in there as fast as they can, because now the landing craft is drawing fire and get out to sea, get back out to the fleet. So Monroe is having one or maybe two landing craft going at a time because it's just incredibly deadly in there. As he sees the fire start to intensify, Monroe mans a machine gun and takes his craft in and positions himself and his craft between the Japanese machine gunners, Japanese defenders, and the Marines trying to exit the beach. Remember, there's a period of time where the, the Marines are just completely exposed, where they've left the cover of their fighting position, and they're moving across an open beach to these landing craft, where they're still relatively exposed. Even in the landing craft, they're at risk. Monroe moves into a position where the Japanese have to fire past him to hit the Marines. He does this to shield the Marines and they so they can get off the beach. Now, As he's doing it, he's laying down suppressive fire into the Japanese positions. And by putting himself in this position and just, they start taking the brunt of Japanese fire. Everybody's focused on this one craft that's in the way. As he's doing that, boat after boat is filled with Marines and evacuated off of the island. Evacuated back to safety. Eventually Monroe is hit. He's mortally wounded, but alive. And as his craft starts to make its way back to the fleet, the last words that his crewmate heard him ask were, did they get off? As in, did all the Marines get off the beach? Did we do it? Did we succeed? They did. They pulled all the Marines off. There were a couple now. In, in, in the overall battle, there were, were 80-some Marines killed, and, and I want to say um, 10 to 15 were, were captured up at the hill, but not because they couldn't get to the landing craft. Um, Monroe's actions, standing there, put himself in harm's way to attract the fire of the Japanese, allowed for nearly 500 Marines, at least 400 Marines, to survive that day where they otherwise could have been overrun. His selfless act placed himself in harm's way, distracted distracted the enemy defenders that allowed for that escape. Monroe, on the way back to the craft, on the way back to the fleet, would die of his wounds at the age of 22, and he would be posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. And the, to date, 
the only member of the Coast Guard to receive that award. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.